Lombard Street, a description of the money market by Walter Badgett, read by Alexander Badgett, Chapter 9, The Joint Stock Banks. The joint stock banks of this country are a most remarkable success. Generally speaking, the career of joint stock companies in this country has been checkered. Adam Smith, many years since, threw out many pregnant hints on the difficulty of such undertakings. Hints which, even after so many years, will well repay per per usual. But joint stock banking has been an exception to this rule. Four years ago, I threw together the facts on the subject and the reasons for them. I venture to quote the article, because subsequent experience suggests I think little to add to be added to it. Quote, the main classes of joint stock companies which have answered are three. First, those in which the capital is used not to work the business but to guarantee the business, thus a banker's business, his proper business, does not begin while he is using his own money. It commences when he begins to use the capital of others. An insurance office in the long run needs no capital. The premiums which are received ought to exceed the claims which accrue. In both cases, the capital is wanted to assure the public and to induce it to trust the concern. Secondly, these companies have answered which have an exclusive privilege which they have used with judgment, or which possibly was so very profitable as to enable them to thrive with little judgment. Thirdly, those which have undertaken a business, both large and simple, employing more money than most individual or private firms have at command, and yet such that, in Adam Smith's words, the operations are capable of being reduced to a routine or such an uniformity of method as admits of no variation. As a rule, the most profitable of these companies are banks. Indeed, all the favoring conditions just mentioned concur in many banks. An old established bank has a prestige, which amounts to a privileged opportunity. Though no exclusive right is given to it by law, a peculiar power is given to it by opinion. The business of banking ought to be simple. If it is hard, it is wrong. The only securities which a banker, using money that he may be asked at short notice to repay, ought to touch are those which are easily saleable and easily intelligible. If there is a difficulty or a doubt, the security should be declined. No business can, of course, be quite reduced to fixed rules. There must be occasional cases which no preconceived theory can define. But banking comes as near to fixed rules certainly as any existing business perhaps as any possible business. The business of an old established bank has the full advantage of being a simple business, and in part the advantage of being a monopoly business. Competition with it is only open in the sense in which competition with the London Tavern is open. Anyone that has to do it with either will pay dear for it. But the main source of the profitableness of established banking is the smallness of the requisite capital. Being only wanted as a moral influence, it need not be more than is necessary to secure that influence. Although, therefore, a banker deals only with the most secure securities, and with those which yield the least interest, he can nevertheless gain and divide a very large profit upon his own capital, because the money in his hands is so much larger than that capital. Experience, as shown by plain figures, confirms these conclusions. We print at the end of this article the respective profits of 110 banks in England and Scotland and Ireland, being all in those countries of which we have a sufficient information, the Bank of England accepted. There are no doubt others, but they are not quoted even on local stock exchange lists, and in most cases publish no reports. 
above 25% of the capital employed in these banks pays over 15%, and 62.5% of the capital pays more than 10%. So striking a result is not to be shown in any other joint stock trade. The period to which these accounts refer was certainly not a particularly profitable one. On the contrary, it has been specially unprofitable. The rate of interest has been very low and the amount of good security in the market small. Many banks, to some extent most banks, probably had in their books painful reminiscences of 1866. The fever of excitement which passed over the nation was strongest in the classes to whom banks lent most. And consequently, the losses of even the most careful banks, save those in rural and sheltered situations, were probably greater than usual. But even tried by this very unfavorable test banking is a trade profitable far beyond the average of trades. There is no attempt in these banks, on the whole and as a rule, to divide too much. On the contrary, they have accumulated about £13 million, or nearly one-third of their capital, principally out of undivided profits. The directors of some of them have been anxious to put away as much as possible, and to divide as little as possible. The reason is plain. Out of the banks which pay more than 20%, all but one were old established banks, and all of those paying between 15 and 20% were old banks too. The privileged opportunity of which we spoke is singularly conspicuous in such figures. It enables banks to pay much, which without it would not have paid much. The amount of the profit is clearly proportional to the value of the privileged opportunity. All the banks which pay above 20%, save one, are banks more than 25 years old. All those which pay between 15 and 20 are so too. A new bank could not make these profits or even by its competition much reduce these profits. In attempting to do so, it would simply ruin itself. Not possessing the accumulated credit of years, it would have to wind up before it attained that credit. The value of the opportunity, too, is proportioned to what has to be paid for it. Some old banks have to pay interest for all their money. Some have much for which they pay nothing. Those who give much to their customers have, of course, left less for their shareholders. Thus, Scotland, where there is always a daily interest, has no bank in the lists paying over 15%. Good profits enough, but not at all like the profits of the London and Westminster, or the, most, or the other most lucrative banks of the South. The Bank of England, it is true, does not seem to pay so much as other English banks in this way of reckoning. It makes an immense profit, but then its capital is immense too. In fact, the Bank of England suffers under two difficulties. Being much older than the other joint stock banks, it belongs to a less profitable era. When it was founded, banks looked rather to the profit on their own capital and to the gains of no issue than to the use of deposits. The first relations with the state were more like those of a finance company than of a bank, as we now think of banking. If the bank had not made loans to the government, which we should now think dubious, the bank would not have existed, for the government would never have permitted it. Not only is the capital of the Bank of England relatively greater, but the means of making profit in the Bank of England are relatively less also. By custom and understanding, the Bank of England keep a much greater reserve in unprofitable cash than other banks. If they do not keep it, either our whole system must be changed or we should break up in utter bankruptcy. The earning faculty of the Bank of England is in proportion less than that of other banks, and also the sum on which it has to pay dividend is altogether greater than theirs. It is interesting to compare the facts of joint stock banking with the fears of it which were felt. In 1832, Lord Overstone observed, quote, I think that joint stock banks are deficient in everything requisite for the conduct of the banking business except extended responsibility. 
The banking business requires peculiarly persons attentive to all its details, constantly, daily, and hourly watchful of every transaction, much more than mercantile or trading business. It also requires immediate prompt decisions upon circumstances when they arise, in many cases a decision that does not admit of does not admit of delay for consultation. It also requires a discretion to be exercised with reference to the special circumstances of each case. Joint stock banks, being of course obliged to act through agents and not by a principal, and therefore under the restraint of general rules, cannot be guided by so nice a reference to degrees of difference in the character of responsibility of parties, nor can they undertake to regulate the assistance to be granted to concerns under temporary embarrassment by so accurate a reference to the circumstances, favorable or unfavorable, of each case." But in this very respect, joint stock banks have probably improved the business of banking. The old private banks in former times used to lend much to private individuals. The banker, as Lord Overstorn on another occasion explained, could have no security, but he formed his judgment of the discretion, the sense and the solvency of those to whom he lent. And when London was by comparison a small city, and when by comparison everyone stuck to his own proper business, this practice might have been safe. But now that London is enormous and that no one can watch anyone, such a trade would be disastrous. At present, it would hardly be safe and in a country town. The joint stock banks were quite unfit for the business Lord Overstone meant. But then that business is quite unfit for the present time. This success of joint stock banking is very contrary to the general expectation at its origin. Not only private bankers such as Lord Overstone then was, but a great number of thinking persons feared that the joint stock banks would fast ruin themselves and then cause a collapse and panic in the country. The whole of English commercial literature between 1830 and 1840 is filled with that idea. Nor did it cease in 1840. So late as 1845, Sir R. Peel thought the foundation of joint stock banks so dangerous that he subjected it to grave and exceptional difficulty. Under the Act of 1845, which he proposed, no such companies could be founded except with shares of £100 with £50, paid up on each, with which effectually checked the progress of such banks, for few new ones were established for many years, or till that Act had been repealed. But in this case, as in many other cases, perhaps Sir R. Peel will be found to have been clear-sighted rather than far-sighted. He was afraid of certain joint stock banks, which he saw rising around him. But the effect of this legislation was to give to these new banks, if not a monopoly, at any rate an exception from new rivals. No one now founds or can found a new private bank, and Sir R. Peel, by law, prevented new joint stock banks from being established. Though he was exceedingly distrustful of the joint stock banks founded between 1826 and 1845, yet in fact he was their especial patron, and he, more than any other man, encouraged and protected them. But in this wonderful success, there are two dubious points, two considerations of different kinds, which forbid us to say that in other countries, even in countries with the capacity of cooperation, joint stock banks would succeed as well as we have seen that they succeed in England. First, these great banks have not had to keep so large a reserve against their liabilities as it was natural that they should, being of first-rate magnitude, keep. They were at first, of course, very small in comparison with what they are now. They found a number of private bankers grouped round the Bank of England, and they added themselves to the group. Not only did they keep their reserve from the beginning at the Bank of England, but they did not keep so much reserve as they would have kept if there had been no Bank of England. For a long time, this was hardly noticed. For many years, questions of the currency, particularly questions as to the Act of 1844, engrossed the attention of all who were occupied with these subjects. 
Even those who were most anxious to speak evil of joint stock banks did not mention this particular evil. The first time, as far as I know, that it was com commented on in any important document was in an official letter written in 1857 by Mr. Wedgelin, who was the, then the governor of the bank, to Sir George Lewis, who was the then chancellor of the exchequer. The governor and the directors of the Bank of England had been asked by Sir George Lewis severally to give their opinions on the Act of 1844, and all their replies were published. In his, Mr. Wedgelin says, If the amount of the reserve bank kept by the Bank of England by, be contrasted with the reserve kept by the joint bank, stock banks, a new and hitherto little considered source of danger to the credit of the country will present itself. The joint stock banks of London, judging by their published accounts, have deposited to the amount of £30 million. Their capital is not more than £3 million, and they have on an average £31 million invested in one way or another, leaving only £2 million as a reserve against all this mass liability. But these remarkable words were little observed in the discussions of that, of that time. The air was obscured by other matters. But in this work, I have said so much on the subject that I need say little now. The joint stock banks now keep a main part of their reserve on deposit with the bill brokers, or in good and convertible interest-bearing securities. From these, they obtain a large income, and that income swells their profits. If they had to keep a large part than now of that reserve in barren cash, their dividends would be reduced and their present success would become less conspicuous. The second misgiving, which many calm observers more and more feel as to our largest joint stock banks, fastens itself on their government, is that government sufficient to lend well and keep safe so many millions? They are governed, as everyone knows, by a board of directors assisted by a general manager, and there are in London unrivaled materials for composing good boards of directors. There are very many good men of good means, of great sagacity and great experience in business, who are obliged to be in the city every day, and to remain there during the day, but who have very much time on their hands. A merchant, employing solely or principally his own capital, has often a great deal of leisure. He is obliged to be on the market and to hear what is doing. Every day he has some business to transact, but his transactions can be but few. His capital can bear only a limited number of purchases. If he bought as much as would fill his time from day to day, he would soon be ruined, for he could not pay for it. Accordingly, many excellent men of business are quite ready to become members of boards of directors and to attend to the business of companies, a good deal for the employment's sake. To have an interesting occupation which brings dignity and power with it pleases them very much. As the aggregation of commerce in great cities grows, the number of such men augments. A council of grave, careful, and experienced men can without difficulty be collected for a great bank in London, such as never could have been collected before, and such as cannot now be collected elsewhere. There are facilities, too, for engaging a good banker to be a manager such as there never were before in the world. The number of such persons is much on the increase. Any careful person who is experienced in figures and has real sound sense may easily make himself a good banker. The modes in which money can be safely lent by a banker are not many, and a clear-headed, quiet, industrious person may soon learn all that is necessary about them. Our intricate law of real property is an impediment in country banking, for it requires some special study even to comprehend the elements of a law which is full of technical words, and which can only be explained by narrating its history. But the banking of great cities is little concerned with loans on landed property, and all the rest of the knowledge requisite for a banker can easily be obtained by anyone who has the sort of mind which takes to it. No doubt obtained by anyone who has the sort of mind which takes to it. There is a vast routine of work to be learned, and the manager of a large bank must have a great facility in transacting business.